Now, if you have used the property to derive assessable income, you do not get the full CGT main residence exemption, even if you lived in it for your entire ownership period. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 220 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Does listing your home on Airbnb or Booking.com or other sharing platforms, do any of these listings affect your main residence exemption? This is the question I asked Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney. At the start, main residence exemption fits very easy. You live in the house and hence it's exempt from CGT. But I find it gets quite tricky when you drill down into, into, the the, detail, yeah. into the details. And I think it has become more tricky because in the past you either lived in your house or and you lived in the entire house or you didn't and you lived in Australia or you didn't. Mm. You know, but now that with the sharing economy and more mobile workforce, I find it has become a lot more complicated. Yeah, well, I mean, the main residence exemption itself, if you go through the legislation, it's about 40 to 50 pages of legislation, which by comparison is about the same length as the small business CGT concessions Seriously? legislation. So, and no one would say that that's, that's simple. So yeah, it should be, it should be treated the same. I and mean, yeah, you're right in the basic situations that, you know, you either live in a house or you don't. And a lot of situations it is pretty simple to apply, but there are a lot of tricks and traps, uh, which I'm sure we'll cover here. I feel bad. I always assumed it was just one or two paragraphs. I actually mm. never looked at it. Yeah. I didn't realize it was 40 to 50 pages. Yeah. Yep. So what does it what does it do over 40 or 50 pages? <laughs> That's a good question. So it defines what a property is, it defines what residence means, it defines what main residence is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got the simple scenario, but you have all these other scenarios. Okay, in the simple scenario, you have a dwelling, you, you live in it your whole life and you sell it. It's exempt. But, you know, what about cases where you don't live in it all the time or you move overseas or you rent it out or you use part of the main residence to produce income? Uh, like a quarter of the house to produce income. And what about um, deceased estates? There's a whole sort of uh, set of rules just around deceased estates. And when someone dies, owning a main residence, passing to their estate, rules around that as well. So there's a lot of nuances to go through. I see. Okay. And so the legislation actually does go into all, a lot of the nuances and doesn't leave it all up to the courts. No, no, no. It's pretty, it's pretty well codified. I mean, the basic case is... Any capital gain or loss that you make from a CGT event is disregarded if you're an individual and it is a dwelling and the dwelling was your main residence throughout your ownership period, disregarding the laws about deceased estates. So that's the basic condition. So it's got to have a dwelling, you've got to be an individual, and it's got to be your main residence throughout your ownership period. So first point to note is you have to be an individual. It doesn't come up all the time, but you do occasionally see family homes owned through companies and trusts. And the reason why that's not advisable is that companies or trusts don't get the main residence exemption at all. And so when they do it, did they just have a bad accountant or are there sometimes reasons why? There's not a hell of a lot of reasons. Um, one reason could be asset for protection. asset protection, but... Unfortunately, the, ben, the 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 pro the the cons of actually losing the main residence exemption are pretty high. Usually, when I've seen that, it's usually related to 
structures that have been set up quite a while ago, maybe in the 80s or 90s, but potentially around the time that CGT was introduced. If it was pre-CGT, it wouldn't really matter, but sometimes they've been in the late 80s or early 90s. But yeah, so individual needs to own it, which could be a problem sometimes if you've, say, bought a property as a, in a discretionary trust. You thought you were going to use it as an investment property and now you decide you want to live in it. And then you've got the choice whether to live in it uh, or or move it into uh, individual names and trigger tax and duty at that time. You might trigger those as well. So, but basically need to be an individual. The second point is, is an interesting one. And people always think about the main residence exemption in terms of property, uh, in terms of land, in terms of uh, clearly defined boundaries, you know, a certificate of title. When you actually go through the main residence exemption legislation, what the main residence exemption legislation covers is dwellings rather than properties. So it's really important to make that distinction. So it covers dwellings and essentially dwellings are units of accommodation that are buildings. It's important because to give an example, if you demolish your dwelling and sell the land as vacant land, you do not get the main residence exemption at all. There's no pro ridering There's zero. The same could apply if you demolished a dwelling and then built a new one and didn't live in the new one and just sold the property. So that's why development sites, when somebody has passed away and it's a development site, that's mm. why the development site is always sold with the house still on it and it's only demolished afterwards. Yeah, correct, because the main residence exemption ties to dwellings and then it includes land under dwellings and land that are adjacent to dwellings, but the requisite is you need a dwelling that was occupied as your main residence. So if you do not have the dwelling or the dwelling is not being sold, so sometimes you might have a large block of land and you're selling off the backyard, the backyard doesn't have a dwelling. You need to have a dwelling that's been sold. So the best thing would then be to put a granny flat onto the backyard and then to subdivide and sell the backyard. Potentially, or maybe you sell the the front and you keep the backyard or something like that. Yeah, but uh, you need to be selling a dwelling. And it can be a big trap, especially in those development cases. It's it's almost always going to be better to sell the property with the dwelling on the site, no matter how you know dilapidated it is, uh, so long as it can be occupied, then then that's okay. The other interesting point that I wanted to make about dwellings is that in some circumstances it's actually possible to sell two properties and get the main residence exemption on both. What I mean by this is let's say you've got some strata apartments and you might own two apartments. It may be possible to treat both apartments as your main residence and sell both as a single dwelling that is more than one unit of accommodation. If you have demolished a wall that connected the two and you basically use it as one apartment. Yeah, it's helpful to have some sort of internal connection between the two units. It's not essential, but it is it is very helpful to have an internal connection between the two to, um, to establish that it's not two separate residences. It is really just one. Yes, there might be two external doors, but it's used together as one single residence. And there's a number of private rulings and a, and a tax determination on this particular issue. I did stumble across one private ruling where the facts of the private ruling register are always edited a little bit. You don't know the, all the details, but it looked like someone tried to argue that they had two residences that were many kilometres apart and tried to argue that they were a single dwelling. And, uh, you know, I was reading through it and I thought, oh, you know, 
Why did they? Why did you? Why did you bother? <laughs> They've got to be at least, if not right next to each other, then in very close proximity to each other to have two units that are a single dwelling. So, in order to get the, the full main residence exemption, the property needs to be used as your main residence throughout your entire ownership period. So in the simple scenario, you live in the property the entire period and clearly your main residence for the full period. But there are concessional treatments available where there are absences from your main residence. And colloquially, it's referred to as the the six-year absence rule, which is not entirely correct, but there is some truth to that. So there's a special rule that says that if a dwelling ceases to be your main residence, you can actually choose to continue to treat it as your main residence. It's in section 118-145. And the rule says that in the case that you're cease, you've ceased to use the property as your main residence and you're not deriving accessible income from the property, otherwise known as you're not renting it out, you can apply that absence exemption indefinitely. There is no limit on how, how long you can apply that for. It doesn't okay. have to be six years. It could be 60 years. I see. So the six-year absence rule is only relevant when you rent it out while you're away. Yes, correct. Yeah. The legislation then says that in the case where you are deriving accessible income, you can only have a maximum of six-year period. Could you rent it out for six years, but then just leave it empty after that and still qualify for the full main residence exemption? Or once you rent it out, you are on the six-year rule and then you can't go back into the um, indefinite no, so long as you so long as you keep under the the six years, so let's say five and a half years, then my understanding is you could just not drive income from it afterwards, and you would you could continue to apply the absence exemption under the other limb of the absence exemption. Yeah. So let's say you go overseas for twelve years, you rent it out for six years, and then you leave it vacant for six years, and then you still get the full main residence exemption. I think it would need to be just under six years to to carry. Okay. To, so yeah, so five, let's say five and a half five years. Five years yes. and three hundred and sixty-four days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you could get it in that scenario, and I have come across some clients that have had similar sort of facts where they've property is being used by a family member rather than being commercially rented out. It may be applying the main residence exemption for, you know, 10, 15 years uh, mm. absences. Is the six-year absence rule, is that a lifetime limit or can you restart it by moving back in and then moving out again? Yeah, you can, good question. You can restart it by moving in and moving out again in terms of preempting your next question. But in terms of how long you need to move back in for, there's no real guidance on that. It needs to be re-established as your main residence. There is an example in the legislation which gives an example of someone going for an overseas posting for a few years, coming back for two years, and then going overseas again. And yes, once you re-establish the property as your main residence, you then can apply the absence exemption again. So in the case of renting it out, it can be for up to up to six years. The um, one caveat to, to all of this is you can only apply the main residence exemption to one property for any particular time. So if you are applying the absence rule to continue to treat that property as your main residence, you can't treat any other property as your main residence, even if you were living in some other property as your main residence. So you can only ever get it on one property at one time. But in the case of going overseas and you know not purchasing any other property, that's not really a not really going to be an issue. And it's any property, even if overseas. So if you bought another property overseas where you live, 
why you rent out the Australian property, then you would lose the main residence exemption? Or is it only within <coughs> Australia that you can only have one main residence exemption? You, you never lose the main residence exemption, but what you would need to do is you need to actually make a choice on how to apply the main residence exemption. So in the case that you do purchase another property, regardless of where it is, you are then faced with a choice on how you want to apply the CGT main residence exemption. So option A would be, I want to apply the absence rule and that means that I can't treat that other property that I purchased as a main residence or option B would be I don't want to apply the absence rule and I want to treat that other property. So you've got a choice. You can actually choose and you make the choice when you actually lodge your tax returns for the capital gain as well. So, so you, you could, can make the choice with hindsight. So yeah. you could actually choose a property overseas as your main residence? Yeah, you could. You could. Oh, really? Yeah. Let's say you have a house in Melbourne and you have an apartment in New York close to Central Park. Hmm. You could make that apartment your main residence and then treat the house in Melbourne as your investment property or vice versa. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. You okay. can, you've got complete freedom to, to choose. I mean, in that example of, of having a foreign property, applying the main residence exemption won't help you with foreign tax. So that's probably the reason why you wouldn't do that in practice. But could. yes. If you don't treat the apartment near Central Park as your main residence, mm. then you pay CGT on it when you sell it because you're taxable on your worldwide yeah, income. Yeah. As long, of course, as you're an Australian tax resident, yep. maybe you're no longer a tax yeah, resident yeah. if you yep, yep. make your apartment. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so the, I mean, the important point is you can actually choose how you want to apply it, whether you're interstate, down the road, overseas, doesn't matter for the purposes of the absence exemption. The The important point is that the dwelling needs to cease to be your main residence and then you're into, into the absence exemption rule. In preparing for this talk, I did come across an interesting private ruling concerning Airbnb arrangements. And the implications of this will come out a little bit later when I talk about what happens when you use a property to produce income. But the question was asked in this private ruling, you had a taxpayer who owned a property and, and put it up on Airbnb and other sites while, while traveling around. And the longest time he was ever absent from the property was about a month. He had various work commitments, which meant that he had to travel throughout Australia. But he, for all intents and purposes, his, his home was still at the, at the property. But he put it up on Airbnb every now and then to, to use for short-term letting. And he asked the question whether he could apply the absence exemption for the, the periods that he was away. So interestingly, the answer that came back from the ATO in this private ruling was that he could not apply the absence exemption for the periods that he was that leasing me. out the properties. Because he leased out the entire property. He leased out the entire property. So why wouldn't it apply? Well, it didn't apply. And, and the reason why this is relevant comes back oh, because to... because he left his things in there. He didn't actually properly move out. Correct. Well, they said that for the absence exemption to apply, the dwelling needs to cease to be your main residence. And it's a point that I don't think has been looked at very much, but here there was an analysis of what that actually meant. What does it mean to cease being your main residence? And in this scenario, the ATO noted that, look, look a month away is not is not insignificant, but based on what you've submitted, it seems that you haven't ceased for that property to be your main residence. Yes. You're, you're traveling around, but 
the furniture the is there, yeah. your clothes are there, your mail goes there, Correct. your phone is yes. still yeah. there. Yeah, and that's, that's relevant for another nuance of the main residence exemption. There's a rule in the, in the exemption which applies. You lose part of the benefit of the main residence exemption when you have used a property to drive income. Just going to find the reference. Just give me a second. Yeah, there's a section in the in the main residence exemption. It's section 118-190, which says that you don't get an entire exemption from CGT where you've used your dwelling for the purposes of producing accessible income during all or part of the period that you've owned it. What's needed for this section to apply is you need to have used the property to produce accessible income during all or part of the period you've owned it. And there's a hypothetical interest deductibility test that says that assuming that you had incurred interest to borrow money to acquire the dwelling, could you have deducted part of that interest? So it's a deductible rule. This section says that where those conditions are met, the capital gain that you make from the disposal of the dwelling is actually increased by a certain amount. It's a bit fluffy on how it works. It says that it's the amount that is reasonable having regard to the extent to which you would have been able to deduct the interest. So just to take a simple example, I think how this would work is that if a quarter of your property was used for, let's say, uh, consulting for a doctor's office, then that quarter of the property wouldn't be exempt. Yes, because you could tax deduct yep. the portion of interest expense, for example, that you incurred yeah. in that quarter. Yeah, correct. You yes. might ask about, well, what about income that I produced from renting out the property? What about that? There's a specific exclusion for you can you can disregard any renting of the property, but it's only during the period that you continue to treat the main residence as your main residence under the absence rule under section 118-145. So in other words, if you rent the property and you're applying the absence rule, that income producing use is completely disregarded. But if you're not applying the absence rule, in the case of the private ruling that I went through because he didn't cease, didn't cease to be his main residence, or in another scenario where you continue to actually live in the property, let's say you do an Airbnb over one bedroom or you've got a doctor's office or so forth. The main residence doesn't cease to be a main residence and you don't rely on the absence rule. Therefore, any rent or licenses or, f or income that you derive is actually included in this, which means that in a simple example, let's, let's just take an Airbnb. You've, you, let's say you own a two-bedroom apartment and you live in one bedroom and then every now and then you, you sublet the other room on Airbnb. Well, in that case, you're not, you can't apply on the absence exemption because you do live in the property as your main residence, but you are deriving income from part of the property, which the interest would have been deductible as accessible income, and therefore you're into section 118-190, meaning that if you sold that apartment in the future, it wouldn't all be tax-free. And this is a sort of a bit of a, a looming issue for a lot of people. I think it very much is. Yeah, because Airbnb is still relatively new and you would have had to be you know, renting your property out at Airbnb and then having a sale hasn't really come up that much, I don't think, just yet. But it's a really fundamental point to, to note. If you can state it really simply, it's if you've got a main residence and you use it on Airbnb, then most likely it's not going to be completely tax-free. 
Yes, you will pay tax on some of the capital gain you make on the property if you rent it out on Airbnb for any amount of time. Yeah, correct. The only exception to that is if the property ceased to be your main residence. So in other words, if you moved out completely, moved out completely and it wasn't just a month that it was on Airbnb, you were gone for say two years, living somewhere else completely and, and using the property still as a short-term rental, but with no intention of moving back into it every month or so. So next question is then, well, okay, yeah. How's the ATO going to know about any of this, about you know properties being being rented out or used on Airbnb? And the answer to that is the ATO already has that information. And I imagine through data matching, we'll use it when properties are being sold where there hasn't been a capital gain reported. ATO gets the information of, what properties have been sold, gets the tax returns, gets the information from Airbnb about rental of license fees for, for Airbnb, can match them up together and very easily can say that, well, this property has been sold, no capital gain was reported. Hey, the property has been used on Airbnb for the last five years. What's going on, basically? And then, and then I guess the police explain would come from there. So there was a, um, just recently, the Airbnb handed over data of 190,000 property owners and hosts the tax office about the information they've received from the platform. And this, this will happen. Every but that's year. not a lot, 90,000? 190,000. Oh, 190,000. Yeah, yeah. So is that basically anybody who has ever rented an Airbnb has now? I imagine so. I think that with that would include pretty much everyone who's listed, the listed property. a property on Airbnb. So they can have that data very easily. And I imagine it's the same for other providers. The capital gain is calculated on a pro rata basis based on floor space and then also based on how many days it was available for rent. Yeah, correct. I think that's the way that it is worked out. So from a technical perspective in that scenario, you do occupy the property as your main residence for the entire ownership period. However, you've got to apply this special rule that says that if you've used the property to produce accessible income and you could have deducted the interest, the rule says that it's an amount that's reasonable having regard to the extent which you would have been able to deduct that interest. So I think practically you'd work out how long did you derive income for as in as a timing period and then how much of the interest would have been deductible. And I think based on a floor space is probably an appropriate way, but it's it might not necessarily be the only way, maybe may based on sort of notional rent for the for the two, or you try to work out what's going to be the best, but I imagine rent, a floor space is probably going to be the best. I think the floor space can get complicated with joint areas. Well, so yeah, that's the thing, because you, the bedroom would be quite small, even a two-bedroom apartment. The bedrooms could be quite small. Would you take the bathroom and the kitchen and all those areas? So are there any private rulings that say, yes, you should include 50% of the kitchen and 50% of the bathroom since the guest would use those as well? Not that I've found. So you could just limit it to the squares of the bedroom? Yeah, it's a lot easier in the cases of like, let's say a doctor's office or something where it's very clear which bit is Yes. For which use, but the problem is where you've got sort of that mixed. How do you then work out what is what is reasonable and what's not? Yes, and there's another tricky point, and that is available for rent. If it's one yes. bedroom within the apartment, when it's not rented out, the landlord uses the entire apartment, and then when the bedroom mm. is 
is <laughs> rented out, then of course they don't use that bedroom. At least you would hope they don't. Yeah. But then it gets very fluffy. Is the bedroom available for rent even when it's used for private use? Mm. I think that that's a good really question. Yeah, because be- most properties are on Airbnb all year long, but the owner lives in the apartment, uses that particular room when nobody's in mm. there from Airbnb. It's and a good point. G- generally, the, this rule covers periods where it is available for rent but not actually being used. So in that example, if it's available the year round and only actually occupied for half the year, then you should take up the full year as, as being um, the period that it was used for the purpose of producing accessible income. It's not not on a day-by-day basis. It's applying the normal sort of principles. It's just like if you had a rental property and you know, it was on the market for being leased for a month before it was leased. It doesn't affect your ability to claim, you know, an interest deduction for that period, for instance. Same principle that applies here. Yeah, but you're right. People don't really think about it the same sort yeah, of way. Yeah, and it is fluffy because the um, owner could argue that they used the room for private use while nobody was staying there. So the question is, is it really just the being available or is it then actually being empty and not used otherwise that decides what days you need to include and what days you don't. I don't think there's any clear answer on that. So we probably would have to wait for the courts to clarify that more. Yeah, I would say just based on normal principles, the the legislation talks about the dwelling being used for the purpose of producing accessible income. And I would say if it's available for occupancy, then it's being used at least partially for the purpose of producing accessible income. You might be able to argue that it's sort of some sort, some sort of mixed purpose. At least part of it is being used by virtue of it being listed. Okay, so whatever day you list on Airbnb as being free, because yeah. Airbnb has that in the database, of course, as well, you mark the days you can't rent it out, but then anything else is usually white and somebody could book it. So mm. any days that somebody could have booked it, then counts as being available and hence needs to be included. Mm. Coming back to the six-year absence rule, yeah. they're basically three scenarios one is i just rent out one room and then the six-year absence rule doesn't apply because i still live in the rest of the dwelling so there is no moving out then you rent out the entire house or the entire property entire dwelling Mm. but you leave your stuff there you still have your clothes there you still have your phone connected there etc then the six-year absence rule also doesn't apply potentially depending on the circumstances yeah Yep. Actually, you know this example, this private ruling? Mm. Yeah. So that was final. The ATO said you cannot apply the six-year absence rule. No, yeah. Or did it then go to the courts? No, no, it was just a private ruling. So, I mean, I think in that example, the periods of absence were quite short. So it was only a yeah. month. So I'd say if you left for a year and it's also your- left your things there still, I would say that's probably enough. I mean, you're allowed to store things in your property. It doesn't mean it's your main residence still. But, yeah, if you were just leaving for very short term without sort of establishing roots somewhere else, then it's hard to say that it ceases to be a main residence. Okay, good. And so that leads us to the third scenario, Mm. that you rent out the entire dwelling, but you move out completely, meaning you take your everyday Mm. things. You no longer have your toothbrush in the bathroom, which you probably don't anyway, but you move out completely. You might have something stored in a cupboard, but you basically have moved out. Yeah, in that case, you would would have a six-year Absence rule if it's being rented and if it's not being rented, then it's unlimited. The important point is also to note that if you rent it out for, let's say, seven years, 
it doesn't mean you lose the benefit of that six-year absence rule. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, so if you're gone for seven years, then you just have to pay the capital gain for one year. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say you own a property for three years and then you rent it out for seven years. Then in that case, you would get the benefit of the first three years. You'd get Plus the benefit of years. the six years. And then the last year would be you couldn't apply them the absence exemption so for 10%. that one year. So it's 10%. So it's important not to get too hung up on that six year as a, as a stopgap. You could... If you go over that, you still do get the benefit. It's not, it's not an all or nothing thing. You still get the benefit of those first six years. You start with the main residence exemption. This rule, this rule in section 118-190, it applies essentially when you derive accessible income from the dwelling. Think about it as simple as that. If you drive accessible income, you're probably going to be in this rule. So that applies to all income basically, but there is a carve out in the rule if you derive accessible income through using the absence rule. So in other words, if, you, if you've got a main residence and you derive any income, you're going to be caught by this rule unless it is during that period where you can apply the absence rule. So the six-year rule, if you can apply the six-year rule, you don't have to worry about that income. That doesn't get included in this. It's only other types of income. So, so the normal scenario is you, main residence exemption, you get your capital gain or losses disregarded if you're an individual and it's a dwelling and you own it for your, the entire ownership period and it's used as your main residence. So that's the starting position. So in a simple example, let's say you always lived in it as your main residence. So you don't need to worry about the absence exemption at all. So you can, you can get a full exemption subject to this rule. Now this rule says that you don't get a full exemption in certain circumstances. Now the, the more commonly known one is where you don't actually live in it for your full ownership period, then you don't get a full exemption. But even if you do live in the property as your main residence for the full period, you may not get a full exemption if you have used the property to derive accessible income. Now, if you have used the property to derive accessible income, you do not get the full CGT main residence exemption, even if you lived in it for your entire ownership period. So in the example of you renting one room, that would mean that you would not get the full CGT main residence exemption for the sale of the property. Despite the fact that it was your main residence for the entire period, you would not get the full main residence exemption. There would be partial, it would be partially taxed. And the example that I was talking about, the carve out to this special rule is where you've derived rent under using the absence provisions. So to take the example of if you've rented the property for five years, you have derived income from the property, but it's covered by the absence rule. So you don't need, this special rule is not going to apply in that situation. And so under the absence rule, you still pay tax on the rental income you derive, yep. but you get the capital gain tax-free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So to be a nerd, this rule about deductible interest, that was a side comment regarding the main residence exemption, correct? The deductibility of interest is contained in section 118-190. So what the rule says is that you don't get the full CGT 
exemption if the dwelling was used for the purposes of producing accessible income and if you had incurred interest on money borrowed to acquire the dwelling, you could have deducted that interest. So there's two, there's actually two elements to this special rule. The first is that you need to use the property producing accessible income and then you need to do a hypothetical if you incurred interest, would it be deductible? Yes. So, so the two pull into the same direction. They pull into the exact same test, yeah. It was very good that you mentioned loss before. The main residence exemption exempts capital gains, but it also exempts capital losses. Mm. So if you make a loss on your main <clears throat> residence, you can't claim it. Yeah, that's correct. And it's, it's not a, other than choice aspects like applying the absence rule, you don't actually have a choice on whether to bring the loss into account or disregard it. The rules just say you, you disregard the capital loss. So yes. you don't have a choice on that. So if you have a loss on the property, you wouldn't apply the six-year absence rule mm. because then you can prorata a loss and claim some part of it. You could potentially choose to apply the, the choose not to apply the absence rule by treating another property as your main residence, but you would need to treat a property as your main residence. Oh, really? You can't say, yeah. oh, nothing is my main residence because I was living overseas. No, no, you need to still treat something as your main residence. So in the case of just owning one single property, you don't have any flexibility because there's nothing to choose. It just applies as it is. So what about people who are tenants? So they rent their main residence, yep. but then they have an investment property. Yeah. They don't have to put a main residence exemption on that investment property. Well, they can't because it's an investment property. You can't. So it doesn't mean that your first property is always automatically a main residence. No. You might not have a main residence you know, that you own. The point is if you've got more than one property you may be able to choose how you apply the main residence exemption because of the absence rule. Leaving aside the absence rule, you don't have any choice on how to apply the main residence exemption. Yes. It just applies to the property that is your main residence. Yes, that is your main residence, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But if you are renting your apartment and you have 15 investment properties, mm. you still don't get any main residence exemption because you don't live in any of them. No, you could only apply it for the, the property that was your main residence. Yeah. Correct. One question. Yeah. Have you ever heard about the ATO contacting landlords about undeclared Airbnb income or undeclared capital gains on Airbnb property? I haven't had any cases of it yet, but I imagine there's going to be a lot coming. Yeah. Yeah, because so far it's always just discussed as a possibility. I've never mm. actually heard the ATO contacting anybody. Yeah, well, I imagine, I mean, the ATO has the data now. and mm. So it's just it's, a matter of time. It's become so good at, for instance, if you receive foreign source income that you haven't that you haven't included in your tax return, then the ATO is very quick to, to send out uh, notices about, you know, you've got a, you received an amount of foreign source income, you haven't included that in your tax return. I imagine they would do a pretty similar thing with, with Airbnb if you hadn't either included the rental income or you hadn't accounted for the capital gain correctly on the sale of the sale of the property. Yeah, so I, I think it's coming. <laughs> GST. Yeah. Airbnb income is residential property income and so hence is input tax yep. and hence not subject to GST. Yep. The commission that Airbnb withholds and not necessarily just Airbnb, Booking.com and any of those platforms, the commission that they withhold will most likely now be subject to GST under the new rules 
Yeah, I think it would be. Yeah, regardless of whether Airbnb is providing a service from overseas or not, I think it would be. Under these new rules. Yeah, the Netflix tax rules. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's more an issue for Airbnb, but it is relevant. But because it's residential property and hence input tax, the GST that landlords pay on the commission, they can't claim. No, yeah, no. And and a lot of landlords wouldn't be wouldn't be registered for GST either. But yeah, because they're making input tax supplies, they being residential rent, then they wouldn't be able to claim any credits for that, for that GST, even if they were a large, a large uh, land Airbnb landlord. Hopefully you've seen that there is quite a lot of detail in, in the main residence exemption. One thing we haven't covered is the main residence exemption where you have deceased estate and relationship breakdowns, which is a whole another area in itself. So we'll cover that in the next episode because it's a, it's a very interesting topic. Welcome back. So the moment you list your home, your main residence on Airbnb, you touch your CGT main residence exemption. If you make the entire dwelling available for rent, you lose the entire exemption for the period it is available for rent. If you only rent out a part of it, for example, a room, you lose a portion of the exemption. But there is one back door. If you move out entirely, then you can claim the six-year absence rule or, if you don't rent it out, the indefinite absence rule. So you can still claim the main residence exemption even while you don't live there, as long as you remain an Australian resident for tax purposes and you don't make another dwelling your main residence. In the next episode, episode 221, Andrew Henschel will talk about the main residence exemption in relationship breakdowns and estates. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <music>